Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Glad you made it out. Um, we have been reading from the book of Numbers this summer, or Safer Bamidbar, the book of In the Wilderness, the story of Israel's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And our, our text for today, as we heard earlier, is kind of one of the better known stories from the book of Numbers, the story of Balaam. And pastors love to talk about the story of Balaam because it's this satirical story involving a talking donkey. And so we can usually work out a way to say ass in church. <laughs> See, I just did it. So it's going to be double entendre city, baby. So just like <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> um, the children of Israel, at this point in the story, they're nearing the end of their 40 years. The old generation that came out of Egypt is dying off, including Miriam and Aaron. They're gone. And they're finally on the move and making progress toward the promised land, headed for the plains of Moab on the eastern side of, of the Jordan, just outside the promised land, just opposite the city of Jericho. But they had this problem that anywhere that they tried to go, they had to pass through somebody else's kingdom or, or land with hundreds of thousands of people eating and drinking water and going to the restroom, right? And, and so Moses would usually, you know, send ahead and ask permission and promise, look, we'll stay on the road, we won't drink your water, we'll clean up after ourselves. And if they were refused, they would have to go around because they didn't like to fight like they did with Edom, they went around. But sometimes they would just end up just being attacked by these people and, and Suddenly, though, the children of Israel began to win these little skirmishes. So, for instance, he asked the Canaanite king, king of Arad if they could pass through. He comes out and attacks and takes a bunch of prisoners. And they go to, to battle, and the Israelites actually win this little battle at a place called Hormah. And then Moses asked um, the king of the Amorites to pass through their land. And the king uh, responded by sending out uh, an army to attack them. And, but the Israelites defeated them. And then they defeated King Og of Bashan, defeating them too. Finally, ended up arriving at the plains of Moab. And um, today, this would be like southern Jordan, um, just on the edge of the, the Dead Sea there. And um, the story goes that the king of Moab, a man named Balak, became obsessed with this approaching band of Israelite nomads whose ragtag army is suddenly, you know, formidable and routing people on their way to his land. And Balak shared his concerns with his neighbor, the Midianites, asking them to, to join with him against the children of Israel. And in the language uh, of the Torah here, it follows closely to the language that Pharaoh used when he had the similar fears about the children of Israel. So Pharaoh said, look, the children of Israel are more numerous and powerful than us. And here it says the Moabites greatly feared the people for they were, too, um, were so numerous. So Balak was afraid the children of Israel were just too big and powerful and, and might be a threat to his people, maybe his rule. Same fear that caused Pharaoh to, to enslave the people of God. And so this King Balak, he needed a plan to deal with this perceived threat. And when facing kind of a strong enemy in the ancient world, it was really common for kings and rulers to hire sorcerers and magicians who would put curses on their enemies. The idea was that there were just these certain people in the world who had special connections to the gods or maybe some kind of 
powers, magical powers, incantation powers um, that they could use to sort of either like tell the future or uh, cast spells and curses on people. And that their actions, what they did was actually kind of forced the hands of the gods. So they had to, to follow through with these curses from these powerful people and caused calamity to come upon a nation or a, a family. It, it was just common. In fact, archaeologists, I read this week, I didn't actually know this, they have recovered several shards of pottery that have these, they're called imprecatory curses, written on them from like 2000 BC. So this, this is a thing that happened. And the most powerful sorcerer of his time was this guy named Balaam. And there's actually pretty good evidence that Balaam was a real human being, a historical figure. There's this inscription that's written on a plaster wall in the ruins of this place called um, Deir Allah in modern-day Jordan, which is right where this, this story actually takes place in the scripture. And the inscription on the wall speaks of the night visions of Balaam, son of Beor, this powerful seer who specialized in curses. And so this, this dates to like 9th century BC, like very close to the same time that this story was taking place in the, for the children of Israel. And a couple hundred years before um, it's believed the book of Numbers was even written. So it's at least pretty decent evidence that Balaam was a historical character, at least a literary figure in the ancient world. And he was apparently pretty good at his job because he could demand a high price from kings to show up and do his thing. Like a, like a prophet for hire. And so when King Balak sent this delegation of elders from Moab and Midian, they traveled over to Balak. They came with a big old wad of cash to bring Balaam back to Moab and curse the children of God who had become too numerous, too powerful. And so they say, they bring the words of the king. A people has come out of Egypt and they have now covered the land. They have settled next to me. Now please come and curse this people for me because they are stronger than I am. Perhaps I'll be able to destroy them and drive them from the land for I know that whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is cursed. Which should kind of sound familiar. This is um, similar to what God said in the call, his call to Abraham in Genesis. He said, leave, leave remember um, lech lecha, get going, leave your land and your family, your household for the land that I will show you. I'll make a great nation and will bless you. I'll make your name respected and you will be a blessing. And then God says, I will bless those who bless those, bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so there's kind of this tension set up in the, in the language here. Yahweh had promised to bless those who bless the children of Israel. These people think Balaam has that same power to bless and curse. And they want to pay him to do some cursing. And so ba Balaam tells them, you know, they come, Balaam says, okay, well, stay the night and let me consult with God. It's interesting. The word he uses is Yahweh. Even though he's, he's not, he's a pagan, like they say his ancestry. He's not Jewish. But then it says God, and it uses again, Yahweh, actually came to Balaam in the night. And Balaam told God the whole story of what's going on. And God said, don't go with him. Don't curse the people because they are blessed. So Balaam gets up in the morning. He says, y'all got to go home. I can't go with you. Um, the Lord said, I can't, I can't curse these guys. So they head home. And um, Balak, the king, thinks that, uh, that Balaam's just holding out for more money. 
So he sends a delegation back with a message. He says, let nothing hold you back. And if you will come to me, I will greatly honor you, which in the Hebrew is, is like code for you're going to get a huge bribe. Like, I will make this worth, this is a free agent contract, man. You should come, and, and this will be worth your while. And Balaam was like, look, he could give me his palace filled with gold and, and silver. I can't go if the Lord has forbid it. But then he adds this, but if you want to, you could like stick around for the night, and we'll see if God changes God's mind. Which he totally, at this point, to me, sounds like, like a, a political consultant in our society who doesn't really care which side wins. He just wants to get paid. You know, that's Balaam in this situation. So he's, he's trying to stall just a little bit to see if there's some way he could work out getting his fee and um, wanting God to change God's mind, which strangely, it seems as though God does. It says, God came to Balaam in the night and said to him, if the man has come to summon you, arise and go with him, but you must do only what I tell you to do. So Balaam gets up and he's like, hey, let's go. We're going. Saddles up his donkey, heads to Moab to get his golden paycheck with this delegation. And there's this strange detail in verse 22. It says, then God became angry because he went, which is weird because God just told Balaam he could go. And now he's angry with him for going. And, and the rabbis, it's interesting. I, I went down, I spent way too much time reading about one verse this week because the rabbis have huge arguments about what this meant. And my favorite grouping, this is probably the largest grouping too, of interpretations, they say that this is just often how Yahweh works, that when we ask for guidance and God says, don't go there, this, this would be bad for you, but then we just keep asking, God will often go, okay, fine, go. But I, don't say I didn't warn you, and I'm trying to stop you the whole way. I'll kind of throw up roadblocks. There's this Jewish scholar named Franz Rosenzweig. He said that when um, God's first word to us is no, and then we persist in asking, he says, then the next time God will, without fail, speak the words of the demon that is within us. You may go. Anybody, does that feel familiar to anybody besides just me? Um, God is... It's kind of hard to tell sometimes when God is leading us or when we're just being led by our own desires. And often that second time, in fact, there's, they have a, a name for it. This would come up in all, a lot of the Jewish literature. It's sometimes called the danger of the second time God speaks. It might be just our desires standing in for God. They say that's probably, that's kind of how they read what happened with Balaam here, which sort of checks out because what ensues is just hilarious and and uh, just like a, I don't know, like a slapstick comedy. Balaam's riding along on his donkey, which is a female. Anybody know the word for a female donkey? It's a jenny. You thought I was going to make a joke, didn't you? It's not a joke. <laughs> it's called a jenny. This is a, I didn't know this, a jenny donkey. Um, so sorry if there's any jennies in the room. Um, the, so the donkey is riding along with Balaam on his back, sees an angel with a sword blocking the road. And so the donkey veers off to go around the angel into a field. Balaam gets so mad, he beats the donkey till it returns to the road. And then the road went through the middle of two vineyards with stone walls on each side. 
So the angel positions there to try and stop him. But this time the, the donkey tries to just squeeze in between the angel and the wall, but he scrapes up Balaam's leg. And this, of course, sets him off. He starts beating the donkey again. And then the road passed through a really narrow passage, like a, a notch where there's no way to turn off to the left or the right or squeeze by. And again, the angel stood there with his sword. And this time the donkey just lay down. And, and just underneath Balaam just kind of lays on the ground. And Balaam got so mad, he, he beat the, the donkey, this time with his staff, with a, with a rod. And all of a sudden, God gives Balaam's donkey the power of speech. And she looks up at Balaam and said, what have I ever done to you that you've beaten me these three times? And Balaam doesn't even question what's happening here. He, he just answers, he's like, you're tormenting me. If I had a sword, I would kill you. And it's, it's meant to be hilarious that Balaam, who's supposed to be able to speak to and for the gods, is in an argument with a donkey. And the donkey seems to be winning. Like, it, it, and it's the donkey here who is acting as God's messenger, and Balaam is the one who comes off like an ass, right? It's just dripping with irony. And the donkey isn't finished. He said, am I not your donkey on whom you have often ridden to this day? Haven't I been in the, ha or have I been in the habit of doing this to you? And Balaam's just like Walt said. Balaam says, no. Like, he's getting schooled. It's, it's the best. So apparently the, the donkey has just won the argument with better logic than the great Balaam. And so it's like this Balaam, this Balaam the seer is more blind than the donkey. Balaam the powerful is thwarted by a lowly animal. Balaam who speaks for the gods is forced to listen to his own donkey, who ends up making more sense actually than, than he does. And the whole thing is meant to, to parody um, not just Balaam, but really the hubris of anybody who claims to speak for God or to um, control God, or to determine who God loves and hates, who God wants to bless and maybe curse. Or in the words of my hero, Rich Mullins, God spoke to Balaam through his ass, and he has been speaking through asses ever since. <laughs> so if God should choose to speak through you, you need not think too highly of yourself. And if on meeting someone right away you recognize what they are, listen to them anyway, he says. God bless Rich Mullins, right? God will often speak to us through the least, the last and the lowly, those on the margins, those who are easily overlooked or dismissed. And in the story, finally, Balaam's eyes are open. He sees this angel who says, why'd you beat the donkey? Everybody's after Balaam in the story. Why'd you beat the donkey? She saved your life. I was about to kill you and let the donkey live. And Balaam is sufficiently chastened. He says, look, I'll just go back home if, if that's what you want me to do. But the angel says, no, go to Moab, but say only what the Lord tells you to say. So finally, he makes it to Moab, finds King Balak. And Balak takes Balaam up to this high hilltop where they could look down and see at least part of the Israelite camp. And Balak basically looks over and says, okay, like, do, do your thing. Pronounce your, your curse. And so Balaam said, okay, I want you to set up seven altars, sacrifice seven bulls, seven goats, 
And then stand here with their sacrifice. I'm going to go over and consult with the Lord. And then he returns to Blot, but not with the message of doom for the Israelites. He pronounces this rich blessing, which once again kind of echoes some earlier parts of Israel's story. He says, from Aram, Balak led me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. That's what he says. But how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom God has not, hasn't denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him. From the hills I behold him low. It is a people that dwells alone, not reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Number the fourth of Israel. They thought to just be able to see a fourth of them from here. Let me die the death of those who do right and let my end be like his, like that of Israel. So Balak's, of course, furious. Like, what are you doing? I hired you to curse them and here you pronounce a blessing. And Balaam's like, you know, don't kill the messenger. I only say what God tells me to say. So Balak takes him to a different hilltop to see more of the camp this time. Same exact thing plays out. Seven altars, seven sacrifices. He goes away, comes back, speaks another blessing. Not a curse. And so he takes him, blocks a slow learner in this story too, takes him to a third hilltop, the higher one, and this time he can see all 12 tribes of the Loam. Same thing happens. Seven sacrifices, seven altars, and he goes away, comes back, and this time Balaam recites this really famous blessing, this poem. I'll just read part of it. It's really long. He says, How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. And if you look at the language there, it's this description makes it sound like what they see from up there is this kind of traveling Garden of Eden in the middle of the desert with, with aloes for healing. He says, you're like a garden beside a river with aloes for healing plants that, that the Lord planted and cedars beside waters, which is not where cedars grow. Cedars grow in, in the heights where there's not much water. But water they'll have in abundance. Water will flow from their buckets, even in the desert. It's kind of this over-the-top picture of abundance. That's what they see. And the rabbis, it's interesting, they make a, a strange observation, at least it felt novel to me about um, this. They say, from standing up there on the hilltop, there's no way this is what Balak and Balaam should have seen in these people. I mean, think about it. They, they spent 40 years wandering around from, from one desert watering hole to another, burying their ancestors, by the way, in the sand one by one until all of that whole generation is gone except for Moses, um, Joshua, and Caleb, eating nothing but manna and hating that, just trying to stay one step ahead of their enemies. They've been doing this for 40 years. There's no way they should have appeared so robust and healthy, like Eden. 
Balaam compared them to, at one point in the poem, to a wild bull or to a lion or lioness ready to pounce. And the rabbis say, in truth, they probably looked a lot more like a bunch of coyotes with the mange. But from a distance, what Balak and Balaam see looks like flourishing in the desert, like a miracle. The writer describes them with Eden terminology, as if to say, it's, it's working. The people of God, they're beginning to be this picture of the world the way God imagined it, a picture of wholeness and peace and flourishing for all the nations, Moab being one of them, for all the nations to see. What Balak and Balaam see is this little Eden community, which is exactly how they've been structured to look. Remember the sim symbolism. The 12 camps are like um, the, this massive and flourishing, fruitful land of Eden. The priest and the Levites um, tending and keeping this little mobile garden of, of the tent or the tabernacle with the, the fence around it. And then the tabernacle itself with its smoke billowing up to the clouds looks like a traveling tree of life. They, they, they saw a little mobile people of Eden miraculously flourishing in the desert. And what I, I want us to notice, we can say a lot about it, but what I want us to notice is that in that moment, looking down from the hilltop, that King Balak had a choice. And he didn't have to see them as a threat, as enemies, and call down curses. He could have just been a friend to them. Could have been an ally, even. Could have just let them pass through and go on their way, at least. Or he could have welcomed them to stay a while and to rest. And yeah, his own people might have probably been annoyed by this. It would have been taxing on their own lands and their own wells to host that many people. Maybe there would be less surplus and fewer profits, but wouldn't that be better than war and destruction? So why did, why did Balak do that? Why was that his reaction, to conjure up a curse against the children of Israel? Why not? Why did he just conjure up a blessing for his own people? Why did it have to be curses? And I think that the answer is really kind of rooted in the human condition and something we all struggle with. It's, it's this idea that we just have this tendency to feel threatened by the success and flourishing of those with whom we share significant social space. Anybody feel that? It's just kind of this dark tendency it's like when your friends are all getting good jobs straight out of college and you're struggling to find good work. Or, or when your peers are getting promoted above you and they're making tons more money or, or, or becoming your boss. Or when a teammate makes a sudden jump in performance and they pass you by. Or a neighbor leaves to go to a, a, a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood. Or all your friends are getting married and having children, and that's really not where you are right now. Or when other people's kids start really excelling while your own kids are struggling. Like, there's all kinds of things that, that can happen to us, and we want to feel happy for them. And, and of course, part of us is, but part of us also feels jealous and, and resentful and depressed and even sometimes a little angry, almost wishing that they would 
fail so they know how we feel. And, and it's, it's just a small step from there to curses. And the closer they are to our social space and social position, the, the more intense this can be. Like if, I don't know, Miley Cyrus got a book deal with a big advance, I feel nothing, right? We, we occupy almost zero common social space. But if some pastor I know gets a book deal with a big advance or has like success in some area where I feel like I'm struggling, I tend to feel threatened by it. I'm not proud of it, but it, I feel jealous and, and I don't know, it diminishes me in my own eyes. That's what's happening with King Balak, even though it has no bearing on anything that I'm doing. And it's really this deadly combination, I think, of competition, scarcity, and fear. You know, competition is, is rough because it gets you from either side. Like uh, 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 in, in comparison, anytime you're like um, comparing yourself or competing in your mind with another person, there's two things happen. Having, um, one is that comparison says, like, don't stick out too much. Just be like everyone else. Don't be too strange. Try to fit in. But also just be a little bit better than everyone else. So don't be like everybody else just a little better. Try that. That's, that's a hard needle to thread. It's, it's kind of conformity and competition all kind of at, at the same place. And comparison's really, really powerful. I mean, one minute you're feeling great about yourself and what's happening in your life and you're happy and content and then you start comparing to somebody else and all of a sudden that feeling just disappears. Brene Brown writes about this some. She says, comparison is the thief of happiness. That feels right to me. And what it gets replaced with most often is a sense of scarcity and fear. Scarcity, if you think about it, is the opposite of abundance. It's this idea there's not enough for everyone to flourish. And so I can't let myself and my people be caught lacking something that we need in order to survive. So what it, what it does is ends up, um, we end up hoarding our blessings and kind of cursing our competition. Fear is this emotional component of scarcity. When we anticipate some kind of danger or pain or loss or that we'd be lacking in something that we want or need and we feel a sense of anxious alarm or distress or panic. And fear, man, is powerful. Most of us cannot be trusted to act wisely in fear. And so when, when comparison and scarcity and fear are all sort of mashed together, we end up projecting those things on some other group with whom we share social space, same location, and they become sort of the embodiment of our own fears and our own scarcity and comparisons when it's not even really about them. It's about us. But we let them embody it and then feel threatened by them. And unless we've been trained to have a more healthy response, it's time to call down curses, right? We feel threatened by their success. That's Balak on the hilltop looking down on the children of Israel, just sort of overcome by this comparison. Remember, he says, there are too many of them compared to us. 
in this sense of scarcity that there's not enough for both Israel and Moab. And this fear, they could overwhelm us. They could defeat us. They're too strong. Moab could be in danger. So he turned to Balaam, the prophet for hire, to call down curses on the people of God. And I really think this is not not too far from the kind of thing that happens to all of us in our lives. I mean, if you think about just life in our society, I mean, the quickest way to sell somebody something is you get them to compare themselves to somebody else who has something, make them feel dissatisfied. The quickest way to political power in our society is to get people comparing their own lives to other people's lives. You take them to that hilltop with Balak and show them somebody else's camp, somebody who has something they feel like they might be lacking, and you stoke that scarcity. It might not be enough for everybody. You stoke that fear. You know, those people, they're coming for what you have or what you need or what you want, and you were here first, so you're going to miss out on the good life. You do that really effectively, you'd be president. I mean, millions of our neighbors are being controlled by this fear that their social position is being threatened. Their economic stability is threatened. Their political status is threatened by some other. And they're just like this close to some social dis- disadvantage or the loss of status or power. And it's kind of this malignant cocktail of self-aggrandizement on one hand and, and insecurity on the other. So it seems like strong and decisive on the surface, but it's rooted in insecurity. Almost like paranoid sense of scarcity and fear of anybody making progress, anybody who's not like us, who's now flourishing. It's the same motivation we see in Balak, only it's happening to our parents and our friends and our neighbors and our mentors and sometimes to us. So filled with fear about being bullied by some other group that they join with the bullies and pick on the weakest ones, the the trans kids, The immigrants, the homeless, minorities, the poor, those with disabilities, refugees. Lately, people of color and and Jews and Muslims, they single them out and they call down curses. These people who usually really struggle to defend themselves. And this is not the path of wisdom. It's not the path to justice. It's not the path to the kingdom of God. It doesn't lead to life and flourishing and wholeness and peace. And the people of God know that God has this habit of like speaking through those that we tend to curse. We tend to see as a threat. And it's really one way to distinguish Leaders who you can trust from those you can't trust is by noticing whether or not they exploit fear and scarcity, labeling others as a threat. And all of us are tempted by this from time to time. To indulge in comparison, to live from a place of scarcity and fear 
afraid that we'll not have enough, and then to project that onto someone else and call down curses. Even if it's just like in little small ways, little micro curses, just a little like, a little thumbs up, or repost. And that's not our calling as the people of God. We've been blessed to be a blessing to the nations, as we read, God said to Abraham, especially to those who are struggling. We are blessed. And I don't know if you caught it in, in Balaam's first set of blessings. He says, lo, it is a people that dwells alone, not reckoned among the nations. He's just saying that, that while, the, while the rest of the world exploits scarcity and fear for, for profit, for status, for political power, the people of God choose the path of friendship with with all kinds of strange others. When at all possible, the people of God choose friendship. Especially friendship with um, marginalized people. With the least, the last, and the lowly. The strangers and aliens. In ancient times, if you think about it, you know, Israel was this relatively small nation surrounded by empires. For for hundreds of years, for centuries. You think about the, the Jews in the Middle Ages in, in Europe, they were, they were the most conspicuous minority in Christian Europe. And you think about what happened to them during World War II, what that led to. In the Middle East today, Israel's surrounded by majority Muslim nations. In America and Western Europe right now, anti-Semitism is, is on the come up. It's alarming. And throughout history, the Jews have never really fit into the dominant paradigm of the nations. And the people of God in general, including faithful Christians, have often been the minority report in, in any nation, the, the prophetic conscience and the reason is, Balak, or, um, Balaam names it here. We are a people who stand alone, called to walk to the beat of a different drum, which leaves us very often out of step with the dominant culture. And as we do this, we preserve the dignity and worth of marginalized people. And we hold to this idea that God can speak um, through all kinds of donkeys and weirdos and people who make us uncomfortable, people we don't understand, people we're tempted to feel threatened by and to curse. But we, we, we cannot do this. We cannot play this role, stand alone among the nations um, from a place of comparison and scarcity and fear. So these are things we have to watch out for. We've been blessed not to call down curses on other flourishing people that make us feel threatened. We've been blessed just to be a blessing to the world and especially to those who struggle on the margins. Oh, that this would be true of all of us and that this would be true of Redemption Church. Amen? Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for the story of Balaam and just the crazy funniness and humor of it all. But also this sobering reality that it's so easy to feel threatened when people flourish around us. And that the way the world really is to call down curses. And the way the world is to um, exploit comparison and fear and scarcity. And I just pray, God, that your spirit living in us and among us would help us to see our lives the way Balak and Balaam saw the children of Israel from those hilltops. That we would be able to count our blessings, you know, that we could just see it. How lucky we are. How blessed we are. And that we would be just too grateful to feel threatened and to do comparison and scarcity and fear. For those of us who really struggle with this stuff, especially the comparison thing, I pray that you would just guard our hearts and minds, that you would cast out fear, and you would teach us to trust in your abundance, that there's always enough. And for Redemption Church, God, we pray that um, you would always be forming us and building connections for us, that we would be living in solidarity with the outcasts of the world. We love you, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way that we do communion at Redemption is we're just released row by row and you come forward, you're offered a plate of bread and a cup and you take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, just say, I will remember or however you feel comfortable. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he was eating with his group of followers and not just the 12, but a bunch of them that were part of the same little ragtag group and he had them all share in the same loaf of bread in the same cup and then he said this he said this this body or or this um, bread is a symbol of my body and this cup is a symbol of my blood or my life that's what that meant to them and he said every time you gather after I leave I want you to eat this bread in this cup and it was this way of saying take my life into your life and just be made of the stuff I'm made out of. And then be my presence, my hands and feet in this world. He said, every time you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion. And it's also why we just set no limits on who can come share in this feast. Like anybody who calls on the name of Christ is welcome at the table. Um, so first, I invite you to join me in a blessing. Let's pray. God, we do ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. 
make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light, and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?